Good morning, brothers and sisters. As Dan said, I'm Jim, one of the elders here. My brother Ed, praise God for his mercy and grace on you. We have sojourned together with you in prayer through this. Thank you. Thank you, Father. That's the best news I've had. I can't remember since when. <laughs> Our God is a God who knows us and answers prayer. Oh, my. How am I sounding? Loud enough? All right. Well, it's been a while since I've stood here in this capacity before you to teach a portion of God's word. And I have to tell you, as I've said before, it is always such a blessing to go through the process of deep consideration of many, many scriptures. Writings of learned men. Yes. So, today, my teaching is on the doctrine of Satan and is a topical view. We'll be covering many scriptures. You won't be able to keep up with me unless you are gifted. <laughs> so, in the back of the room on the table, I have most of the verses that I reference available to you, should you want to take them. My first division is the doctrine of Satan, a topical view, as I said. My second division is Ephesus, Ephesus 6, 10 through 17, the Bible's defense. And yes, like Viola, if you wanted to get up and and uh, take one of those back there, you may. The Bible clearly teaches of the existence of Satan in seven Old Testament books. Jesus himself referenced Satan 25 times in the Gospels. Matthew 10, excuse me, Matthew 4.10 and Mark 3.26 and Luke 13.16 and in John 12.31. And every New Testament author mentions Satan as well. Our Lord clearly taught the existence of Satan. The names of Satan occur 53 times in 47 verses in the Bible. Who is this being, or is he a being at all? Satan is a created being, created supreme among all others and most beautiful. Let's look at Ezekiel 28, 11 through 16, where we see a due application of the king of Tyre and Satan. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, the son of man, raise the lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Very precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings, your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You are an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You are on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. 
You are blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in the midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, again is a dual application of the king of Babylon and Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and make myself like the most high God. Satan has many names in the Bible. He is called the prince of demons in Mark 3.22. The prince of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In John 12.31. The tempter in Matthew 4.3. Jesus in the wilderness is the uh, example of that particular passage. You all remember that one when Satan came to him, right? The devil or Diabolos, the accuser, or adversary is referenced 60 times in the strong concordance. Beelzebub, the enemy in Matthew 13, 39. Lucifer, son of the morning. Evil one in Matthew 13, 19. Ephesians 6, 16. And Beal in 2 Corinthians 6, 15. The old serpent in Revelation 12, 9. Make no mistake, Satan is a distinct personality. I would say, given our current culture, if one was to approach an individual on the street with this question, who is Satan and what is his purpose, most would consider the idea of a spiritual predator to be a myth or a comical figure. No, Satan is not an imaginary or symbolic character. Some commentators say that the figure of Satan is vague in the Old Testament and apocalyptic in the New Testament. Apocalyptic meaning describing end-time prophecy and events. As recorded in the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, Zephaniah, Revelation, and others. Sounds serious. It is. It is. It is a dangerous thing to trifle with Satan or his emissaries. In other words, those who follow Satan in the, his rebellion against God, also known as demons. Satan pursued image bearers of God in the beginning. In the Old Testament, we first encounter Satan in the Garden of Eden setting, where Satan is di disguised as a serpent who enticed Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam followed him. We see in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, that God commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat if every tree of every tree of the garden, but if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Wow. 
Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and died spiritually, and sin became the nature of all mankind, and their hearts became hardened towards God. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 18, 12. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And again in Jeremiah 16, 12, you too have done evil, even more than your father. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. Yes, the Lord says to Isaiah in 6.10, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand their hearts, with their hearts, and return and be healed. Yes, God was the initiator in these examples. But the point here is that due to their fallen nature, they had hearts that could be hardened and acted accordingly. They had the fallen nature of man. How about Job, righteous in all his ways before God? And God allowed Satan to destroy everything he had except his faith in God. Everything. Satan destroyed Job's health. He destroyed Job's family, his livelihood, and his relationships. But Job did not curse God as his wife suggested. He endured Satan's devices and was restored. 1 Samuel 28, verse 8 through 14, King Saul was tormented by evil spirits, and he consulted with a spiritual medium whom he had banned from the land. This medium summoned Samuel from the grave, resulting in a risen Samuel pronouncing a curse on Saul and his sons that they would be killed in battle the next day, the very next day. Serious stuff. In Matthew 12, 16, King Herod issued orders to kill all male children two years and older, thereby fulfilling a prophecy from Jeremiah 31.15. And then there was this from Luke, our Lord to Peter. You know what it was in reference to? Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Yes, Satan has been active from the beginning and is falsely writing on what he sees as a great victory so far, namely the crucifixion of Christ, which ultimately resulted and will result in Satan's defeat. But Satan knows the scripture and its outcome, yet he presents in the destruction of the image of the bearer, he persists in the destruction of the image bearers of God. The New Testament writers testify as to Satan's character in a variety and a variety of his functions. Again, Satan, this prince of demons, this enemy of truth and ruler of the kingdom of the air, along with his fellows, these angelic, his angelic follow followers or demons operate continuously day and night in our atmosphere to fill it with satanic deception and depravity. 
And then there's the enemy within. This heart. This mind. This flesh. 1 John 1.18 says, We, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. How much time do you spend in your thought life? What happens when someone offends you? What's going on there? As you run the tape of, I should have said this. Or I should have said that. I should have lashed out and defended myself. But Matthew 15, 19 through 20 says, Out of the heart comes all manner of evil. The heart and mind often being synonymous in Scripture. Ultimately, Satan's principal work is energizing the human spirit within every image bearer of God, particularly those among mankind that are disobedient to God. They are like those who cannot bear the light, as described in John 3, 18 through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As a note here, few among us would rise to the level of Satan's direct attention. Yes. We are under the influence of Satan's evil world system. The New Testament is full of references to Satan and his demons. Make no mistake, this is a present reality. We, God's elect, are not called to an unhealthy preoccupa- preoccupation with the demon, the, excuse me, I'm sorry, with the demonic realm. No, we are called to pursue Christ and his righteousness alone. And we do so with the whole heart, as described in 1 John 2, 29. Most Americans, even Christians, are in a hypnotic state under Satan's influence. And what do we do? We regularly break the first commandment. I'm going to take some time and go over the commandments, and I'm paraphrasing. They are found in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17. One, no other gods. We're speaking of polytheism or multiple gods. Man has sought other gods throughout our history. Number two, no idols. There seems to be no end or to what degree Americans are capable of making idols out of. Swearing. Smash a man's thumb and hold your children's ears. <laughs> it even happens to believers. Yes. But what is most egregious is utter disregard for God and the holiness of his name. Just walk through a public park where people are talking. You're going to hear that happen over and over and over and over. And we should not 
becomes dull to it, we should pray for that person to come to the light, of which I'm guilty of. I'm more angry than prayerful <laughs> most times at that. Number four, keeping the Sabbath. That is not ap applicable under the New Testament covenant. Five, obedience to parents. In our culture, most parents have fallen short of instilling obedience in their children. And when it comes to our adult children, how often do they seek our advice on matters of life, choices, and godliness? Sadly, the wisdom of the elderly is a forgotten source of education. Number six, murder. Yes, murder in the Old Testament was punishable by death and still is in most places. But what about abortion? We've had the judgment from the court. Babies are being killed as I speak in this country. This battle is not over. It is not over. We need to continue and persist in prayer, just as we did with our brother Ed, till we see a victory. Adultery. Marriage and its intimacies are between one man and one woman and for life. To break this vow in infidelity is an egregious offense and was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Theft, particularly minor theft, is commonplace. I'm going to tell you a story about Jim and Jeannie because Jim tells stories. When Jeannie and I were young, I needed a brad, now that's a small na nail, to hang a pitcher. So we went to the hardware store where I promptly opened a box of a hundred brads and took one and headed for the door. Jeannie was horrified and just stood there. You see, she was raised in a family that was honorable, trustworthy, and considerate of others. I was not. I was a sinner. And she was as well at the time. We weren't married yet. We were just kids. Jeannie caught up to me and demanded I put the one out of a hundred back in the same box with the other, or she was walking home. <laughs> her pursuit, her tenacity was kind of like the shepherd leaving the 99 for the one. Yeah. Yes, honor, trust, and consideration should mark the path of a Christ follower. Number nine, false witness. Most societies acknowledge the value of truth when it comes to life and testimony. It is, the, it is foundational for an ordered society. And then there's this, the last one, coveting. Oh, I love your shoes. I wish I could afford such extravagance. Or, look at that truck, you lucky stiff. <laughs> Where are we now as a people? We have become a nation far from God. Yes. These commands were the underpinning of our nation. They have been removed from our community and our state buildings, torn down and trampled underfoot. How is that possible? How is that possible? And Satan, who never sleeps or rests, revels in his handiwork. You see, Satan deceives the whole world. 
He is masquerading as an angel of light to destroy everything God represents and his people. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. A time is coming, and maybe sooner than we think. In Matthew 24, 4 through 13, Jesus, his disciples asked him to two questions. But what questions they were. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Yes. Continuing verse 4. And Jesus answered him, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will, be, will, be, will grow old. But the one who endures will be saved. Am I saying the end is near? I don't know. But verse 22 tells me this. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Our adversary, his anger, his rage, will continue to intensify as we grow close to the end of the age. Satan is the author of rage, and he has instilled his rage in the image bearers of God, among whom he, Satan, is their father. In John 8:44, Let's look at Matthew 25. Verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here comes the bridegroom, come and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there is, no, there is not enough for us and for you, go gather, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the virgins came also, the other virgins who were left outside. Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Our God knows these are fragile times, and our pitfalls are many. What is our defense? Leads me to our second division, the believer's defense, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. The whole armor of God. Reading in verse 10, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand Stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Quoting from the foreword of the book of the month that Dan referenced this morning, quote, this passage gives us a biblical framework for spiritual warfare. On the one hand, it frees us from the misconception of a closed naturalistic worldview that understates our spiritual battle, understates our spiritual battle on the other hand, it provides us with a sane approach to avoid overstating it as well. This text gives us a perspective on spiritual warfare that can dramatically shape our daily lives, showing us how to engage rightly in the great war. End quote. Okay, let's consider verses 10 and 12 together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Self-sufficiency in this battle is a killer. Being strong in Christ is crucial in the spiritual battle that is fought on earth and heaven. Verse 11, putting on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand. The imagery here is to stand and do so in the strength of the, strength of the Lord. Second Samuel says 20, in 20, chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. Let's consider verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 4, verses 4 through 6 says this. For the weapon of our warfare... That's plural. Weapons of our warfare are not to be flesh, 
excuse me, I'll read that again. For the weapons of our warfare are not to be flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Yes. Useful when you're involved in that mind talk. <laughs> Taking those thoughts captive. Yes. And being ready to punish every disobedience in this context of that passage referring to false teachers in their midst. When your obedience is complete. Brothers and sisters, our weapons are not wield in open cab combat between the forces of darkness. Let me say that again. Our weapons are not wielded in open combat, combat between the forces of darkness. No. Our Lord has fought that battle and won. But Scripture is telling us here that there is a battle raging in the spiritual realm, and it will continue until our Lord returns as described in the Second Corinthians quote. Our spiritual weapons are faith in Christ and faith in one another. We find our strength and spiritual nourishment in the written word of God. Our physical strength is found in not forsaking the assembly of the fellowship of believers, sitting under sound biblical teaching, and reckoning our lives are not our own, but Christ. How independent are we? when we're away from this assembly. We are a nation, particularly in the West, of a culture of individuals. We covet our time, our ability to move about freely, and give little regard to what it means to be slaves of Christ. Alone and forsaken, Christ was nailed to the cross and bore the punishment that was our due. He died on our behalf for our sins and rose victoriously from the grave, thereby securing the salvation of all who would believe. Yes, our Lord and Savior has done it all. Let's move on to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor, armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. The imagery here is to take up full armor of God, and remain in battle dress. Do you get that? Remain in battle dress. Never take it off. Hmm. Yes, never take it off. The armor are breastplate and shoes. Yes, all of it. Leave it on. Sound messy, ladies? How do you bathe? <laughs> well, fortunately, it's a spiritual connotation. You can get in the shower. <laughs> yes. Okay, verses 14 through 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the blessed plate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one. And take 
the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember the phrase, stand therefore. The imagery here reflects Christ as a well-armored divine warrior king of his people who himself is adorned with armor as described in Isaiah 11, 5. Five. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness of the belt his loins. Isaiah describes the belt that our Lord wears. It is a belt designed as ours to gather the loose garments about his waist and speaks of his readiness for battle. Righteousness and faithfulness are our Lord's preparation. As stated, this girding about the waist with the belt, enabling the warriors to fight unhindered by motion, the motion of movement. Hebrew 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We run girded about the waist. We fight with the tools given us, as our Lord does, and goes before us. Just as he has from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, our God has fought the battles. Indeed, he is and always has been our warrior king. Moving on to the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate is descriptive of a dual covering of the warrior's torso, torso from neck to the waist, its purpose to protect the warrior's vital organs. Verse 15. And as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, shod with the gospel of peace is an equian term for horseshoeing. Where's Robin? The process involves cutting away the hoof matter. I see a parallel in this own thinking. Our flesh, this cutting away of our flesh and nailing the hammered metal, speaking of our sanctification. Perhaps. I'm a horse person, so it meant something to me. It is the feet of the warriors that takes the most abuse. Battles are waged over imaginable rough terrain, and the gospel of life in Christ lasts for a lifetime. It was designed that way. It goes back to never taking it off. No, a godly life cannot be purchased at Walmart. This gospel of peace speaks to the good news that is available to all who would believe in salvation through Christ. Salvation in Christ gives us peace with God. Ephesians 2.15 says this, speaking of Christ, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This shield of faith, the emphasis on the shield, which is a soldier used for protection, it was a primary defense in battle. The shield was four to six feet long and two to three feet wide. It was fire resistant to protect the soldier in battle. And the shield could be joined side by side with the man to the left or the right or together overhead, kind of like a turtle, to protect the group against arrows that would be shot, molten metals that could be dropped or hot water or stones or anything. The wearer could move in mass under the formation advancing through opposing enemies. This is an apt illustration of faith in action. Faith, saving faith, is a gift from God. The believer is given faith by grace of our Lord. If an, an individual has no faith in God and faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, there is no hope of salvation. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, as we look at the world system today, is there any doubt as the scripture says, when we see these things, know that the end is near. To quote Earl Pitts, <laughs> one, one person knows Earl Pitts, a boy. <laughs> Wake up, America! Jeez. I hope I didn't interrupt any nappers. <laughs> Wake up, America, your salvation draws nigh. Luke 21, 28, quoting the King James. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift your, and lift your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. It's for you, Marcel. <laughs> take up the hel verse 7, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Yes, take up the helmet of salvation. A good helmet is a valuable thing, even invaluable. It's a piece of equipment in spiritual warfare and life. Its purpose is to protect the head. No helmet, no vital protection. I used to race motorcycles, and I can tell you that the battle scars on those two very expensive hel uh, helmets were telling. And they told the story of nine trips to emergency for motorcycle-related <laughs> injuries. <laughs> I could just never, as I've said many times to others, perfect the landings. <laughs> and the sword of the Spirit. What of this sword? It is the written word of God. Read it and read it again and again. Meditate on it. Chew it. Ponder it and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal its truths. We cannot be armed unless we read the whole of God's word. And we are to sit under the teachings of godly men who trust in the inerrancy of the whole of God's written word. It is God's complete revelation of himself and given to us to be our primary guide through life. 
Much blood has been spent through the ages to preserve it and still is being shed. In it we find everything for life and godliness. Nothing is left out. Nothing. I challenge you to find what is left out. If it's not there specifically verbally, it's there in principle. Everything is in God's word. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3 I don't know why that's standing alone. <laughs> Must be a typo, but whatever it is, it's God's word. Matthew, reading from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And... On, the hands, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It has been written. All that could be say, said has been sent. It is the whole of God's written word and is our only defensive weapon. God's word is our only defensive weapon. And I would add prayer. The end. Let's pray. My Lord, my God, these things, these sober things, these challenging things are nothing less than your written word. We stand on them, we abide by them. We may not understand them, but we know, Lord, perhaps in our life journey we will understand much more than we do today because that's the way of your leading us in our sanctification. We trust that to you, my God. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And I lift them up to you. And I pray that each hearts are uplifted to some degree by this teaching and confidences given and hope taken. For our hope, my Lord God, is in you.
our blessed Lord and Savior. We stand together in Christ. Thank you, my Father God. I praise you and give you glory and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.